Hey everyone, this is Bradley Chlevsky, co-founder and editor-in-chief of MerchantFraudJournal.com, and this week we have part one of a two-part conversation that I had with Pallavi Kupaapte, the COO at Chargehound. We had a great conversation diving into the ecosystem that merchants have to operate in when they're trying to fight chargebacks with the banks. It was really enlightening to hear a perspective about the issues that are faced and the technology that banks are still using in the modern day to process chargebacks, which really gives some insight into why it's so difficult to win representment cases and what you can do to help. So hope you enjoy the podcast as always. Thanks so much for tuning in. And remember, you can always get the latest merchant fraud tips and tricks at merchantfraudjournal.com. Enjoy. Hi, Pallavi, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Bradley. It's nice to be here. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time. No problem. I like your podcast. I've listened to the last couple of of episodes, and um, there's some great stories on here. Thanks. Really, really appreciate it. And we're looking forward to to adding some more. So I'd like to let everyone get the good stuff up front. Tell us who you are, where you're from, why you're here, and then we'll uh, take it from there. Sounds great. Um, So my name is Pallavi Kupaapte. I'm the COO of Chargehound. Um, We're based in the Bay Area, uh, and we are the only fully automated chargeback solution Uh, in the market today. So what that means is, um, you know, I'm sure your audience is all too familiar with chargebacks and the representment process, Um, but it's, you know, can be an extremely costly and and manual um, back office process that really sucks up a lot of the time and expertise of, um, you know, super valuable fraud and chargeback analysts and um, risk and payments teams. Um, at you know all kinds of merchants, especially those transacting online. Um, and so what we do is we fully automate that process of representment from end to end. So from the moment you get a chargeback, um, we intake that, we uh, append all of the compelling evidence into a beautiful document, and we submit that automatically uh, and instantly for every single dispute that you receive. So um, we can fight up to 100% of any given business's disputes. Uh, and we can fight, you know, over 250,000 chargebacks per minute. Um, And so what that really enables merchants to do is, one, recover the maximum amount of revenue um, that they might otherwise be losing due to chargebacks, which can be, you know, a very significant amount of their revenue, anywhere from a quarter to an entire point of, um, you know, bottom line revenue. Uh, And we enable them to do that without... Uh, that stuck of resources um, and you know massive opportunity costs that it would otherwise require um, to accomplish that. So we try to turn what's often seen as a cost of doing business or a lose lose scenario into a real um, you know win win scenario for for merchants. Um, so so yeah, that's what we do. Awesome, awesome. Well, thanks again for joining. So we'll just jump right in. And as as loyal listeners know, I don't hear these beforehand. So you get my genuine reaction to some of the craziness that goes on in our world. So let's hear your craziest fraud story. Yeah, I listened to a couple of your episodes and I, I thought about this one a lot because um, we hear, you know, a lot of different stories from from our merchants and, you know, we love getting the behind the scenes scoop from them as well. Um, and I think, you know, usually when we think about fraud and fraudsters, we're um, thinking about these 
black hat characters who are stealing credit cards or, you know, uh, swapping faces or, um, you know, doing these nefarious deeds on the dark web and these credit card numbers and all of these things, right? Uh, stealing identities. And, you know, this shows some amazing stories about um, these crazy crime rings and you know, these like kind of fantastical um, schemes. Um, and I think those stories are really fascinating because they are so crazy. Uh, you know, like that's not something that I would encounter in my day-to-day -day life as a consumer. Um, and so at Chargetown, you know, what, what we do is we focus on the chargeback side of things, right? Which happens after the fraud has occurred, after these transactions have occurred, and now these transactions are being disputed. And what we've seen for many of our merchants is that actually a lot of them have very sophisticated fraud prevention solutions in place on that front end, right? They're using an identity verification pro provider like uh, Sion, who, who you talked to a few weeks ago. Um, they're using, you know, full stack, you know, digital trust and safety solutions. Um, and they have very smart people focusing on that problem. And so over 70% of their disputes sometimes are coming from friendly fraud. <laughs> and what's great, so that's what we spend a lot of our time thinking about at Charitown and kind of where, where our battle stories come from. And what's really crazy to me about friendly fraud is how mundane it is. Friendly fraud is not someone surfing the dark web, coming up with these entrepreneurial schemes to commit crimes, right? It's so mundane and it is so blatant um, and it's so widespread. So I don't think I personally, I, I would love to find out if I did, I don't think I personally know anyone who's committed acts of criminal credit card fraud. Right. right or identity fraud or any of these things. I don't think I know anyone who's, who's done that, but I know that I know many, many, many people who have um, committed friendly fraud. Right. Um, honestly, you know, before we started really? Chargehound, I I think I've committed friendly fraud. Right. I've definitely bought something, and the return policies have been really uh, tough to navigate. And you know, I've said, you know what, like I can't get through to this merchant. I'm gonna dispute this on my credit card. I remember the first I did that, and it was like in college. I couldn't believe how easy it was, right? Most of the issuing banks That's let you do this with a click of a button. Um, I don't know if you've ever tried to file a, a chargeback dispute, but you I literally- I have not personally, so. Yeah, so you're probably in a, you're probably in a minority because a lot of people I talk to, you know, <laughs> friends, family, when you built Chargehound, people were like, oh yeah, I, I do that all the time, right? Like I. I took an Uber and then it took too long and their uh, customer service chatbot is um, really annoying. So, so I, uh, so I'm really interested. Back. I'm really interested on this point before we continue when you're, when you're talking to people and you're hearing these kinds of stories, I assume that this gets factored into the way that you're approaching this problem from a prevention standpoint or not even a prevention standpoint, because by the time it, it gets to your desk, the problem is already manifested. So it's really more of a resolution. When you're trying to resolve this, how do you factor this kind of stuff in? What what can you do to even discover this? Because I would think most people, when you contact them, aren't gonna, going to say, yeah, I really just didn't feel like paying for this and didn't Absolutely. feel like going through it. So I charge back because that probably just sounds like it's not going to hold water when you say that to someone. So how does this kind of factor into your your day to day um, resolution procedures? Yeah, that's a great question. You're right that, you know, 
by the time something has become a dispute or a chargeback, that friendly fraud event has already taken place. You know, it's interesting what you're saying about if, if you called someone up and you said, hey, what's going on here? They probably would charge back less because they wouldn't want to get that phone call, right? <laughs> right. Um, because yeah. those explanations <laughs> don't don't hold water, right? But the really insidious thing about friendly fraud is it looks just like a legitimate transaction on the front end. It doesn't look like fraud. There's nothing wrong with it. Actually, as a merchant, you're providing your product or your service just the way that you entail and, and you're getting a customer who's legitimate and they're using their own credit card and they're clicking your, you know, or they're accepting your terms and conditions. And so by the time it's a dispute, right, what you have to do is you have to submit all of this documentation around that transaction. And so you could call up the customer, you could try to, and maybe, let's say they pick up. So you've already gotten lucky. And you can say, hey, what's going on here? We provided you with a refund. Why are you also charging this back? And they might say, oh, I'm so sorry, my mistake. I will, I, I'll uh, try to take back that charge back. Once you hang up the phone, there's no incentive for that person to right. do that, right? And you can't really submit a, you know, oh, I talked to someone and they said that they would retract this back to the banks because that doesn't really count as compelling evidence right. because it doesn't prove that the product was delivered or that the credit card was verified or that the right. purchase was authorized. And so you you really are in a rock and a hard place. So So to answer your question, you know, what we do is if a transaction, if a chargeback is a case of friendly fraud, which it often is, we submit compelling evidence and documentation that shows that this was a legitimate transaction. Because the way to prove that something was friendly fraud is to is to <clears throat> excuse me is to prove that it wasn't true fraud, that it wasn't a merchant error. You know, if a chargeback is coming in with a reason code like the product was never received. Well, a shipping tracking number, a shipping manifest, signature, any any proof of that product or service being received is going to show that that actually isn't really a case of, uh, of merchant liability. Right. Uh, and so, so we take all of that into account in the documentation that we submit. So I want to go back to this confronting people, because I'd imagine that for merchants, even sophisticated merchants at large retailers, there's some poor human being that's getting tasked with calling people. Now, I'm genuinely a non-confrontational person, but I, a lot of times uh, I feel like I'm in the minority of, of uh, human beings. So I feel like most people, though, aren't going to enjoy making that phone call, even if it's their job to go and do it. So I'm curious what kind of stories you might have about calls gone wrong, right? Because I'd imagine some people are going to say, oh, I'm really sorry. I didn't know. I didn't realize. I'll, I'll do it. And they're going to go on their way and do it or not do it. But I'd imagine that there are also people that use that door, having the, the retailer on the phone or a representative on a phone to let them know what they think about why they made a chargeback, whether that's poor customer service, the wrong thing, a damaged thing, whatever possible thing that they might have. So I'm curious if you have heard any stories like that and how that factors in to kind of how you're going about gathering this information and how you counsel merchants to go about gathering this kind of information for themselves. 
Yeah, that's definitely a, a kind of a horrifying and also uh, pretty funny of, of these conversations, right? Um, the truth is that most merchants well, one, you know, depending on what your business is, you might not have a way to, to contact that customer. I think one of the craziest things about, or not craziest, but one of the factors in this whole thing, right, is is that these transactions that were happening face-to-face are happening online, where remotely, where no one is present. And so there isn't that face-to-face confrontation or interaction. And so I'm sure that there definitely are some businesses, probably smaller ones that collect the phone numbers and do try to call uh, every customer that has filed a chargeback. Um, We definitely have some merchants who do try to reach out to customers, especially if it's a super high dollar value chargeback or, or whatever, maybe not over the phone, but maybe through a customer service chat. We've heard a lot of stories of these customer service chats where the the customer actually has reached out and the customer has said, so, so like we work with a lot of, uh, merchants in travel and and entertainment. So let's say you booked a hotel room and you you booked the hotel room, you paid for it online with your credit card, you stayed there for three nights and you you signed the folio when you got to the hotel and then you left. And a month later, two months later, the crazy thing about chargebacks is they can be disputed months after the transaction. So there's some good stories about that too. But a month later, you reach out to the customer service agent, you call the line or you went over chat and you say, hey, I want want a refund. And there are these chat transcripts of customers saying, hey, I want a refund. Customer service agent going through the the steps. Okay, what happened? Why? And they say, oh, I I didn't stay there. I I didn't use the... I, I didn't stay in the hotel room. And the customer service agent going in and saying, well, we see that you checked in, see that your ID was scanned. We see that your, it, and hopefully they're storing all this information, right? We see that you signed the folio, the, the hotel verified that you came and the customer just say, I, I didn't, I didn't come, I want a refund. And then, you know, they'll keep going. And then like the customer story will change and they'll say, oh, actually I did come, but I didn't like the room. The room wasn't big enough. And so I, I want my money back because it wasn't what I tried to book. And the customer service is just like, okay, well, um, that doesn't really qualify for a refund because you you booked the room, you stayed, stayed in the room, there, right? you, you got the service, <laughs> you, you, know, you got the service, you provided our service exactly as described in our terms and conditions, and this doesn't qualify for a refund. And you'll see on the chat screen, so then the, the, the customer will get to the point where they'll say, well, I'm going to charge it back then. And the customer service will be like, well, you know, please don't do that. But this isn't this this doesn't qualify for a refund. We we can't give you a right. refund. And um, there's countless of those chat transcripts, right, where it just ends with like, all right, uh, I'm going to file a chargeback. So I want to I want to follow up on that thread before you before you go on and ask you about the banks. And this is something that I really have always wanted to ask someone who specifically deals with the representment side of fraud. Because we we recently published uh, an editorial about Apple and how they had basically gotten away with something that most merchants never would in a million years, which is basically got all their money back. I don't remember all the exact details right now, but I know that this is a huge problem because on the bank side, their incentives, and I think not enough merchants really understand who's incentivized in what ways in this process. The reason that the the merchants, I know you know, but I'm just stating for the audience, the reason that the merchants are getting stranded or stiffed with the bag is because 
the customers, which are the credit card users, need the reassurance that if their card is legitimately stolen, they're not going to have to pay for it because a lot of people would opt out of having a credit card, even more now that we're developing alternative digital forms of payment. It would be even worse than it would have been even five, 10 years ago. So the bank's customers is not the merchant. Why? Because a merchant has to accept credit cards somewhere if they want to be in business. We have not moved far away enough from the credit card economy at this point. Who knows what it'll look like 10, 20, whatever years down the road. But as of today, there is no alternative. You cannot have a viable business for 95% of your everyday merchants if you're not accepting credit cards. So the bank knows that you are going to take this take this uh, service. And so they don't really have an incentive because they, as a group, are not liable for the fraud. So they say, well, we need people to take it out. And we know the merchants are going to use the credit card companies anyway. And so yeah. it's the merchants that end up holding the bag. So... I don't think enough merchants really understand how that works. And I'm curious what your experiences have been. If if these kind of things come up where you say to the bank, there should be some movement here to try and prevent obvious, repetitive, friendly fraud where you're cutting off a credit card user because it's 5, 10, 20 times that you're seeing friendly fraud occur on their account, even though it's not harming the bank. And I'm, I'm interested to hear as much as you're willing to share about yeah. that ecosystem with the banks. Yeah, I love that you brought that up. I think you hit a lot of points on the head there that really make up the, the backdrop of this, this ecosystem, like you describe it, right, that set merchants up uh, in a lot of ways to be in, in this really tough position. So I think you're exactly right. I, I agree with everything that you just said. I, I think I think there's a couple of things here that, that I want, want to call out. So one is exactly what you said, right? Depending on the merchant, a merchant like Apple is going to have much more leverage with the banks than a smaller merchant, right? And, and we see that because we service merchants really up and down uh, the spectrum in, in terms of their size and, and their transaction rates. So we see the the different treatment that, or, or the different ways that merchants are, are or are not able to have leverage with the banks and, and how that affects things. There are conversations with the banks that you are able to get um, and have as a much larger you know, global enterprise than the mom and pop shop transacting at much smaller volumes. So the 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 rules are not the same for everyone. Um, and I think that's a great point. And I think it's very smart for these really large merchants to make use of that leverage, right? Because all they're doing is trying to even their playing field. Because nobody a wants lot of to lose merchants... Apple as a customer, but your right. mom and pop exactly. shop exactly. is not, they just don't have the leverage. Exactly. And it's smart of Apple to say, hey, you know, we have some leverage here, too, because that's honestly very rare for, for merchants in this payment ecosystem to have that kind of leverage. So I don't think I think that's I think that's the right thing to do. I think that for the banks and I don't I don't think I really have to hedge too much here. I'm, I'm willing to be candid like they have um, a business to run, too. Right. And they have exactly their customers are the credit card holders, are the consumers. And chargebacks were invented as a customer, a, a consumer protection measure in, in the 60s, right? When everything was happening face to face, online commerce was 
not even a glimmer in our eye. And those rules have largely stayed the same as Mm -hmm. everything has come online. And a lot of these issuers and acquirers are massive institutions with a lot of legacy infrastructure, a lot of legacy processes. And you could go down to just a huge rabbit hole into how all of all of that works, right? So they are also trying to evolve with the times and online and digital payments are accelerating at such a massive pace that we're seeing a lot of this stuff lag. And that's, you know, that's not to like go off on too many tangents, but that's how you see payment processors really serving as wrappers on top of that to make these infrastructure is more accessible for merchants, right? To, to put technology on top of, of a lot of this legacy infrastructure to, to make some of these things more accessible for merchants, right? Your, um, your stripes, your checkouts, your brain trees. But, but at the root of it, right, there, there are all of these legacy processes. And, and what we've seen is even at the issuers, you know, the people reviewing the chargebacks, right? I like what you said about, you know, if someone has committed a bunch of friendly fraud, shouldn't they be there? There should be a repercussion, right? But a lot of times, you know, at the issuers themselves, there's no uh, there's not necessarily technology or, or automation there to make those processes easier. So you've got chargeback analysts on that end reviewing oftentimes these documents that are faxed to, to them, uh, if you can imagine, right? Uh, that's um, awesome. Reviewing and there are these massive queues <laughs> of disputes. And so the merchants are, are getting their disputes and they're scrambling to be able to fight those disputes. But the merchants can adopt a technology like ChargeHound. And they can automate all of those disputes and fight all of them in an instant. But then those are going to be sent back to the banks. And the banks, uh, there, is, there isn't yet uh, a, a charge hound for banks. So and- isn't that exactly the point, though, that this, this is still going through facts? Like, I promise you, yes. I'm confident, having never worked in a bank ever, that there is no other function of a modern bank yeah. that is using a fax machine. And that just yeah. shows you how little importance and emphasis is placed on this problem, which is exactly the point. I agree. You're right. At, at the end of the day, if a merchant doesn't find a way to fight their chargebacks, then they are going to lose a significant amount of revenue. If a bank doesn't doesn't find a way to more efficiently handle those chargebacks, they're not on the hook for anything because they're not liable to the merchant. Thanks for checking out the podcast, everyone. Hope you enjoyed part one of this conversation. Next week, we'll be releasing part two, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Take care.